New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, award-winning poet Jane Hirschfield, has said, Poetry as a form itself is attempting to create a way to outwit time. Poem is language attempting to last. Hirschfield's poetry centers on beauty, time, and, it has been said, about awareness, waking up to the substance and sensuousness and depths and wideness of our existence. I agree with this view of what her art offers to our hearts and minds. Jane Hirschfield is the author of six collections of poetry, a book of essays, and three books collecting the women poets from the past. Her awards include three Pushcart Prizes, as well as fellowships from the Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundations, the Academy of American Poets, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Her collection, Given Sugar, Given Salt, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Hirschfield draws inspiration for her poetry from both Eastern and Western poetry, and her practice is Zen Buddhism. Her poetry books include Lives of the Heart, After, Giving Sugar, Given Salt, and the classic translation of the ancient Japanese court women, The Ink, Dark Moon and Come Thief. Join us for the next hour as we explore why poetry moves our hearts and minds with our guest, Jane Hirschfield. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jane, welcome to New Dimensions. Thank you so much for having me here. It's my pleasure. I would love to just start off, just start us off with, with a poem. Can you start us with something that you'd like to read. Absolutely. This is uh, the first poem in the new book, Come Thief, and the poem is called French Horn. For a few days only, the plum tree outside the window shoulders perfection. No matter the plums will be small, eaten only by squirrels and jays. I feast on the one thing, they on another, the shoaling bees on a third. What in this unpleated world isn't someone's seduction? The boy playing his intricate horn in Mahler's fifth, in the gaps between playing, turns it and turns it, dismantles a section, shakes from it the condensation of human passage. He is perhaps twenty. 
Later he takes his four bows, his face deepening red, while a girl holds a viola's spruce wood and maple in one half-opened hand and looks at him hard. Let others clap. These two, their ears still ringing, hear nothing. Not the shouts of bravo, bravo, not the tympanic clamor inside their bodies. As the plums' blossoms do not hear the bee, nor taste themselves turned into storable honey by that sumptuous disturbance. Mm. So much, so much. What was the inspiration for that poem? Can you tell us? Well, there was a very specific circumstance behind it, which was um, in 2007, I was commissioned by the composer Evan Chambers to write a poem for a long cycle of uh, music and poetry, which he made called The Old Burying Ground, which is a fantastically beautiful piece. And in February 2008, uh, we performed it, uh, the Michigan Symphony Orchestra and the five poets who were involved in the piece were all invited to perform it at Carnegie Hall. And you know what happens when they put a piece of new music on as a program? They always like to couple it with something well-known so that an audience will come. And the second piece on the program was Mahler's Fifth. So having been on that astonishing stage and been, you know, having had my awareness totally heightened by that experience, I then sat in the audience and watched the orchestra with, I think, a very changed awareness than I had ever had before. And noticed this extraordinary young man doing the French horn solo, and um, noticed the glance. And when I went home a few days later, there was my plum tree, as it always does every spring, outside the bedroom window in full flower. And somehow, starting to write, this is this is what emerged. This, the blossoming of the one kind and the blossoming of the other came together and and made the poem. Mm, mm. The poem as a whole, I mean, it's just exquisite. And then, in your poetry, there are always these moments where there are these phrases that just sort of pop, and you, you're, if if your eye is reading it, you. Mm -hmm. you or e your ear is hearing it. You, you. It stops you. You go uh, like the the part of the poem about the plum tree. Re read out those couple of lines again, if you may. The very beginning yes. or the very end. The very beginning. The very beginning. For a few days only, the plum tree outside the window shoulders perfection. I see. You just you just you get it. At least for me, I get it. Like. Right, that perfect moment when it's in full blossom, it shoulders perfection. It's it's Thank held you. up. The the tree is shouldering this perfection. And it also in that then you're alluding to the passage of time in some ways that now it won't always shoulder perfection. Right. right. And which is probably the deep subtext under the poem. You know, I was once 20, um, and that, that first love and that absolute blossoming perfection of the young when they're first in love and the entire world falls away 
It doesn't matter that you've just performed this difficult piece of music. It doesn't matter that everybody's cheering. You know, they're in a world of their own. And I think there is something in us which so loves the consummate moment when a thing is perfectly itself, whether that thing is young love at its beginning or a plum tree at the moment of its blossom, knowing that, you know, in the next moment the petals will begin falling. Um, and we, we can't help but honor that, also knowing that, you know, it's part of a larger context. The bees will come, the nectar will be turned into storable honey, and perhaps, I, I never actually thought of it until, until this moment, but, you know, maybe this poem is the stored honey of that moment. Mm-hmm. In, I have to really compliment you in observing that quick, probably not very lingering glance right. between these two young people. Yes. You saw that. How many people in that audience saw that? Maybe maybe quite a few. I don't know. Probably not. But I think not. Yes, I agree yeah. with you that you saw that glance. So that is let's let's talk about observation. Yes. Um, what you've talked about observations and and how it really helps to shape Poetry, or I actually heard a, a talk that you gave at the LA Library ongoing series with scientists and poets, and and with Sean Carroll and yourself, and I, I loved it. You can hear it online if you go to the the website. And um, you were talking about observation in that talk. So, can you say just a few words about observation? Yes, yes. So, I I do think that. You know, any new perception is born from two things, and the first of those two things is noticing. It's awareness. It's seeing something. Um, and then we bring to it something else, perhaps, but the primary act of learning something new or seeing in a different way is first an intimacy with what is and being present with what is. So for this conversation with Sean Carroll, he's an astrophysicist at Caltech, and we were brought together by the L.A. Maine Public Library's allowed series of, of public speakers to look at uh, the nature of observation from each of our fields, he from astrophysics and me from poetry. And this caused me to do what I often do when I want to understand a word better I will go to its history. I will go to its etymology. And what I discovered was very interesting when I looked up observation, which is its earliest meaning had to do with watching over, standing guard, keeping safe. So the way a mother would observe her child, um, just to be present with it with a certain um, spirit of protection and warmth and compassion and caring. So there's a deep connection in the earliest meaning of observation. There's, there's a connection between the observer and the observed. Um, the next meaning which came to attach itself to the word 
is uh, what we mean when we talk about observing a holiday. It has to do with a certain kind of behavior, so the enactment of something. And then only after that did the word come to mean uh, to look without interference, so that when, for example, in a hospital, a patient is kept under observation, you're not doing anything, you're simply watching. And the very last meaning, the most recent, um, is uh, what I'm doing right now, which is making observations about observation. So it came to mean also to say and to express what you've seen. And I think there's a fascinating thread of connection between these four activities and the order in which they emerged into consciousness. To protect and keep safe, to stand over, to do something, to hold, um, to bring into your life, and then almost the opposite, this observing without interference, and then lastly, the expression of it. And I think, you know, there's a tradition in um, certain Chinese and Japanese spiritual traditions that no experience is complete until it has been captured in a poem. Hmm. which is why you have so many death poems from China and Japan. Even at the moment of death, if you possibly can, you are supposed to make one final observation to leave behind. Oh, well, so beautifully said. And in, in your poetry and in any creative arts, I guess it's kind of the observation, having that kind of attention. It's almost like a spiritual attention. I think all awareness has a spiritual component, you know? Yes. I'm speaking with Jane Hirschfeld, and we're, she's the author of Come Thief, a book of poetry. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and we're talking about poetry and specifically some poems that are being read from her new book, Come Thief. And I'd, we were talking a little bit about Japan and China just before the break, and I wanted to um, ask you about, in Japan, they have a long tradition of poetry, and one of the famous poets from Jap Japan is the 17th century poet Basho, and you've written about Basho, and he um, made a statement 
something to the effect that what is wrong with most poems is that they are either subjective or objective. And what did he mean by that, Jane? Yes, well, even the person who he first said it to found it a little baffling. Um, He said that to one of his haiku students, and the student said, don't you mean too subjective or too objective? And Basho's answer was no. Um, So so what he means, I think, um, is that a poem, especially as he envisioned haiku, which are a very particular, very short kind of poem, um, presents reality. It presents a constellation of existence which is neither totally inside the personal self nor is it separate from the personal self. So it's a very Buddhist statement, and it has to do with a way of being in the world which isn't centered on ego. And I think poems in general, even the most seemingly personally autobiographical Western confessional poem, there is something in the way we think through images which pulls us out of the narrowest definition of the self. When you are thinking with an image or a metaphor, you are thinking with the whole world, your own life, but the life of everything as well. So Basho's own most famous haiku, uh, the one most people know, old pond, frog jumps in, sound of water. Old pond, frog jumps in, sound of water. Now, this seems completely an objective portrait of something happening in the world, and it is. And on that level, it is a poem about thusness, about not adding to reality. And yet the entire reason it moves us is because we feel it inside of ourselves. And we feel that old pond and this state of ancient, undisturbed consciousness sequestered from uh, the distractions of the world. And then we feel frog jumps in, something happens, and then response. So it's an experience which you can't label outside and you can't label inside. It lives in some realm which includes both and is larger than both. Mm -hmm. Why should we like poetry, or why should we read poetry, or why should poetry be part of our lives? Yes, well, I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that for anybody else, but I can say why I want it to be part of my life. And it has to do with living more largely and permeably and openly and with a steeper attention to the actualities of existence, my own and everybody else's. I think we turn to poems at very particular times in our lives. um, And often that is at a moment of disturbance, at a moment of great joy or a moment of great happiness. You know, when people fall in love or when they lose love or lose someone they loved, that's when they want a a poem. Um, When they get married, they want a poem. So these great transitions are larger than the normal, ordinary consciousness. 
And what poems do is they give us a vocabulary for understanding things which just isn't available through any other use of language. They're quite unique. You can say the same thing about every art form. It's not only poetry. Music, the same. Dance, the same. We want all of the arts in our lives because we need to be able to fully inhabit what is, for the most part, incomprehensible by logic, um, unholdable by the minds of business, and connects us with everybody else. And you can read a poem 4,000 years old and recognize your own humanity in the humanity of that vanished Sumerian priestess who wrote it. Um, it's a tremendously supple tool for comprehending the truly fundamental things that happen in a human life and also the very subtle passing ones. You know, not every poem is about love and death and loss. Some of them are about what Basho's haiku was, something almost impossible to say except in the words he said it in, and yet it matters to us to capture the quality of a fleeting moment. Poems stop time. Mm. And it, they expand awareness. I want to talk about time in just a moment, but before we do, mm -hmm. they expand awareness, and, and they, they, they do stop time. Like, for example, in that first poem that you read earlier, mm -hmm. uh, French Horn, yes. there, there were two words that popped out at me, and it's the kind of words that I just wanted to, wait, read them again. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, your eye just wants to go back, and because you said the pleated world. The unpleated the un world. Oh, the unpleated. Yes. All right, see, that's where my eye needed to go back, but I remembered pleated. Yes, it was yes, the, yes. This pleated world, unpleated world, mm -hmm. the unpleated world, and it just really stopped me, mm -hmm. and I wanted to just sort of sit under the apple tree and, <laughs> and, and, and contemplate the unpleated world, and the opposite of that is the Pleated world. Yes, of course. One of the things about poetry is anything you say in the negative in poetry also exists in the positive. And certainly, you know, this poem was published in The New Yorker, and those are the two words that I got more questions about. Email after email arrived with my friends saying, I love that. What does it mean? I love it. I don't understand it. And, you know, when you write them, you don't necessarily have some translated meaning yourself, but it has to do with the unfolding of what was hidden and the opening of the plum blossoms. You know, for me, what I see immediately is a fan. A fan. Yes. And when it's closed, yes. you don't see the full design. Yes, yes, exactly so, exactly so. And, you know, you asked why, why would we want to read poems, but... This is why we want to write poems. Uh, you write a poem in order to discover an image that you yourself did not know and could not have known any other way. And so, you know, anything that a reader finds in a poem which stops them and makes them think probably had the same effect on the person writing it. Uh, Robert Frost famously, famously said, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. You're not transcribing things you know. You're hunting a new way to see and comprehend the world. This is very important because you're saying that when you sit down mm -hmm. to write a poem, 
you really don't know what you're going to write about or say or or be, No, be I with. absolutely don't. I absolutely don't. Um for me, the writing of a poem is an act of discovery. And so do you come with it with a question in mind or what do you do? There is often a question, but it is almost kinesthetic. It is the feeling of a question rather than the enunciation of one. So something is asking so far below the surface that all I know is time to find paper and pen um, mm. and find out what is here. Now we're talking about time. You said time to find, and <laughs> that reminds me of time. Let's let's talk a little bit about time. Uh, maybe we could start with a poem about time. Uh, I'm not sure which one. Maybe a day is vast. Yes. Would, would you? I would be happy to. Okay. So th this is a poem which... Um, is about our experience of time as utterly malleable. I think we all know how sometimes it slows down, sometimes it speeds up. Um, the odd thing I, I mentioned earlier, I said that poems stop time, but to stop time merely means to expand it so that what would have been tiny and passing suddenly becomes a room you can walk around in and pick up the apple and eat it in the middle of what would have been an instant if time were moving at its normal speed. Um, and sometimes, of course, time moves so quickly that it vanishes right out from under our feet. So this is A Day is Vast. A day is vast until noon, then it's over. Yesterday's pond water braided still wet in my hair. I don't know what time is. You can't ever find it. But you can lose it. Mm, mm. It's a beautiful image, and I love it. It's, it's vast until noon. We all yes. relate to that, don't we? <laughs> and then suddenly you, you look up and you go, where did the time go? Where did the time go? Where did the day go? It's gone. And yet, before noon, it feels endless. You can do anything with the day. Precisely, precisely. So we want to talk about, too, your epiphany with cottage cheese, because that has a bit to do with time. Yes, yes. very much so. Yes. Um, so this is a poem which... Um, I do refer to as my epiphany with a cottage cheese container, um, which is how it started. And um, it is a poem that truly came out of, you, you said before, you know, do you have a question? And in the case of this one, I didn't have a question. I had an experience which was so utterly unexpected and powerful and overwhelming that, you know, pretty much as soon as it had completed having itself, I thought, oh, I think I'd I'd best see if there's any words for that one. Uh, so the poem is called Perishable, it said. Perishable, it said, on the plastic container, and below, in different ink, the date to be used by the last teaspoon consumed. I found myself looking, now at the back of each hand, now inside the knees, now turning over each foot to look at the sole. Then at the leaves of the young tomato plants, then at the arguing jays. Under 
the wooden table and lifted stones looking. Coffee cups, olives, cheeses, hunger, sorrow, fears. These two would certainly vanish without knowing when. How suddenly then the strange happiness took me, like a man with strong hands and strong mouth, inside that hour with its perishing perfumes and clashings. Perishable. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and she's the author of Come Thief. If you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, facebook.com forward slash Jane Hirschfield, H-I-R-S-H-F-I-E-L-D. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Jane Hirschfield, and you just finished reading a poem called Perishable, and is that right? Yes. Perishable, it's set. (laughs) And um, so say more more about that. Yes. So so as as we mentioned in the last segment, um, it came out of an intimate moment with the cottage cheese container, which I was eating on my windowsill, and I suddenly saw the expiration date, you know, that they put on the purple ink on the bottom, and had the strangest experience of joy, um, which is not our usual association with the thought of expiring. Um, But I just had this feeling, oh, the cottage cheese is going to expire, I'm going to expire, the Blue Jays, uh, the, the wooden tables, we're all, we're all in transit together. We're all in this moment in time together. And the cottage cheese knows when its due date is, and none of the rest of us do. So the poem is oddly, you know, I hope people find it a little absurd and funny that I'm sort of looking at the bottom of my feet for where my, my purple ink stamp with the date of my death actually isn't. Um, But then in the end, it changes tone and talks about this strange happiness and and compares it to the kiss of a strong love. And for me, that almost encompasses one of the great under-river themes of this whole book. Um, You know, being a person who is closing in on 60 at this point in my life— You know, we can have two relationships to time. Actually, we can have infinite relationships to time. Um, But because of who I am, because of Zen practice, because of any number of things, my feeling is we need to agree to reality. We need to say yes to what is going to come to us. And so that strange feeling of joy was an acquiescence to standing in the river in which everything flows and flows away. And isn't it, isn't it true that knowing 
at some point we will perish. Our our physical bodies will pass away. We don't know what else beyond that, but it makes life more precious. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it means we have to pay attention to every moment, and it will never come again. And for me, this is one of the ways of honoring what is, is by not taking it for granted. Um, you know, uh, I, I spoke with you earlier before the interview about one wants to use quotes sparingly, but this is such a good one. Um, Wallace Stevens, death is the mother of beauty. Mm, mm. Beautiful. Yes, beautiful. Let's do another poem about time. Uh, this one is called The Conversation. Yes. So I think everybody's had the experience of um, being in some party or gathering when when a conversation doesn't quite happen. You know, the, the time and the events just take it away from you, and uh, this is about one such moment. The Conversation. A woman moves close. There is something she wants to say. The currents take you one direction, her another. All night you are aware of her presence, aware of the conversation that did not happen. Inside it are mountains, birds, a wide river, a few sparse-leaved trees. On the river, a wooden boat putters. On its deck, a spider washes its face. Years from now, the boat will reach a port by the sea, and the generations of spider descendants upon it will look out from their nearsighted eightfold eyes at something unanswered. And you know, I think what that poem is doing with the time in it is it goes back again to that phrase of, you know, the pleated world. Um, everything on the boat happens within a pleat in time. Um, this this moment, and yet it leads to a destination unforeseeable on on a river in a world unknown. It, it just, I just have to say that just reminds me thinking of the spider mm -hmm. uh, who's living lives, and then another life it, it passes away in this little voyage, and yes. another life, and another life, and then. There's how many generations of spiders arrive at this other, mm -hmm. and still that unfulfilled conversation. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, it's just so wonderful. And I'm thinking of the monarch butterflies who. That's right. They they in they they leave the the um, Mexico and the oil mill trees and one generation, and it takes something like four or five generations That's to get right. to Canada. That's right. But that last generation lives a different time. It mm -hmm. lives nine months. It flies all the way back to a place it's never known. It kind of finishes the conversation, doesn't it? it flies, oh, that's beautiful. What flies, a marvelous association. Flies back to these mm -hmm. oil mills. It's never been before, but generations ago it has. Yes, yes. And then it hibernates all winter, and mm -hmm. then it starts over again. Mm -hmm. The only time that scientists have discovered in variable interval of time that a, a species lives. That fascinating. It, it is fascinating, but they do complete the conversation. So I just yes. wanted to mention that um, 
maybe that will inspire mm-hmm. you for another poem to match oh, this but one. But there's a marvelous uh, entire book about monarch butterflies, book of poetry by Alison Hawthorne Deming. Oh, thank um, you. Thank <laughs> you. I recommend it. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. We'll look that up. We'll look that up. Let's let's talk about now we're talking we're getting into the part of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, many of your poems have a kind of scientific bent. You were at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest uh, Writer-in-Residence, uh, yes. weren't you? And one of the poems that you came up with during that time, I believe, it had to do with the canopy of the mm-hmm. old-growth redwood forest. Can you say something about that? Yes, yes. So, so the H.J. Andrews is the place where all the original research on old-growth forest and the need for its preservation was done. Um, it is where the spotted owl lives. It is where, quite a long time ago, a young generation of scientists said, we would like to study the canopy. And uh, their thesis advisor said, oh, you don't want to do that. In 20 years, all these trees will be gone. They're, you know, you're ending your career because there won't be anything left to study. And they said, I think I'd like to look at it anyhow. And so they had to figure out a way to do that. And it was quite difficult because nobody had ever been in the canopy. It was as unexplored as certain parts of the deep ocean remain now. And so the first thing they did was cut down a giant redwood, and it cut down, and it hit the ground, and it exploded, and there was no way to study anything because it was all quite destroyed. And then a couple of young women graduate students uh, sort of went and tapped their professor on the shoulder, and they said, we know how to get into the canopy. We're mountain climbers. And so they took their ropes and their pitons, and they got up into the canopy. And ways of getting up there that are less destructive now have been invented. Somebody figured out you could take an arrow and shoot a line up into a branch and then use that to pull up a heavier rope. But, you know, the entire old-growth awareness and ecosystem goes back to this handful of people asking a good question. What is going on at the tops of ancient trees? And an amazing um, side benefit of the preservation of these forests is uh, the the, uh, breast cancer treatment drug tamoxifen uh, was first made out of taxol, which was derived from the bark of ancient yew trees, which only grow in old-growth forests. And as I was walking the trails of the Andrews, having been introduced to the yew tree, I found almost every—they're rare. They're, they're, they're like small dancing crones. They're not enormous trees, and they're very ancient. They're draped with lichens. And every time I passed one, I would find tears in my eyes because my own friends' lives have been saved by these trees. And these trees, which only grow in ancient forests, were saved by these researchers. And they're growing rather in the dark. I mean, yes. It's very shaded. Yes, yes, which is why they're so small. Um, but, the, but the other thing uh, to sort of bring us to the poem that, that came out of this experience— 
Uh, the other thing, what's wonderful about being a writer in residence at the Andrews is they teach you a lot. So they, they give you a lot of the natural history so that you can bring it forward in your own way, just as the scientists are bringing it forward in their way. And what I learned is the fairly recent discovery that the nitrogen source for old-growth forests is lichen. You know, people had thought maybe it was the salmon pulses coming up the creek, but it's not. It's this tiny little litter of shredded gray-green things that you see on the floor as you walk through the forest. And those are a kind of lichen known as lobaria, and it grows in the canopy, catching light, fixing nitrogen, and then falls to the forest floor. And these tiny bits of drifting litter bring nitrogen in sufficient quantities that you can have these enormous trees living off this cyclical um, transformation of sunlight and the biochemistry of the, the nondescript living organism. And so I was, I was uh, just moved to write a kind of um, poem praise to both the lichen and to the thought of all the unrecognized powers human beings, artists, so much we don't see, which is part of the sustaining web. So here's the poem. For the lobaria, usnea, witch's hair, map lichen, beard lichen, ground lichen, shield lichen. Back then, what did I know? The names of subway lines, buses, how long it took to walk 20 blocks. Uptown and downtown, not north, not south, not you. When I saw you later, seaweed reefed in the air, you were gray-green, incomprehensible, old. What you clung to, hung from, old. Trees looking half-dead, stones. Marriage of fungi and algae, Chemists of air, changers of nitrogen unusable into nitrogen usable. Like those nameless ones who kept painting, shaping, engraving. Unseen, unread, unremembered. Not caring if they were no good, if they were past it. Rock walls, water fans, earth scale, mouse ears, dust, ash of the woods. Transformers unvalued, uncounted, cell by cell, word by word, making a world they could live in. I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and she's the author of Come Thief. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Jane Hirschfield, and she's a poet, and where her most recent book is Come Thief, and she's also the author of many other books of poetry, an award-winning poet, as you can all tell from our conversation so far. Let's talk about, let's first go into a poem that really struck me, and I think won quite an award, uh, and this was Critique of Pure Reason. Yes. Critique of Pure Reason. Like one man milking a billy goat, another holding a sieve beneath it, Kant wrote, quoting an unnamed ancient. It takes a moment to notice the sieve doesn't matter. In her 90s, a woman begins to sleepwalk. One morning finding pudding and a washed pot, another the opened drawers of her late husband's dresser. After a while, anything becomes familiar, though the Yiddish jokes of Auschwitz stumbled and failed outside the barbed wire. Perimeter is not meaning, but it changes meaning. As wit increases distance and compassion erodes it, let reason flow like water around a stone. The stone remains. A dog catching a tennis ball lobbed into darkness holds her breath silent to keep the descent in her ears. The goat stands patient for two millennia, watching without judgment from behind his strange eyes. Oh, Jane, there's so many images in that poem. I mean, that's worth just studying in, in a, a long time, reading and rereading. One of the phrases that just absolutely popped out at me was the dog listening. Uh, if you could read that line again. Yes. A, a dog catching a tennis ball lobbed into darkness holds her breath silent to keep the descent in her ears. Mm -hmm. So I might I might ask you what kind of advice would you give to someone who would like to write poetry? Ah, um, I think anyone who wants to write, basically, what they need to do is cultivate first the attention of a writer, and there's all kinds of ways to do that. Um, one is, of course, to read other people's poetry, because poetry is a language that's been developed over thousands of years. And just like we need to learn to speak English, we actually learn to speak poetry from the first lullaby that our mother sings uh, through, you know, the most difficult poem that you might find in a magazine and put away because for the moment it's quite incomprehensible. But it is a language, and being familiar with a language makes you more supple and better with it. But then also the attention to the world. So when I hear you say how much this poem struck you, my inner response, or that line struck you, my inner response is, but all credit goes to Maggie, my border collie, <laughs> because it was she who actually did it. You know, we would we would take her out every day since she was a border collie. She required um, some serious border collie work, which in her case was hurting tennis balls. And if we were late and we took her out into the park at night, we suddenly noticed that she was catching the ball by listening for it before it landed. 
It would, you know, you'd hear her gallop out and you'd hear the hard breathing and then it would just fall silent. And she would find the ball by that acute awareness. And I do think attention is the center of almost anything. I've read something about how you talk to your poetry students and you talk about observation in your seven words, which are everything changes, everything is connected, pay attention. Yes. Well, the the original source of those words um, wasn't actually from poetry. It was from a friend calling me up on the phone and saying, Jane, I don't know what to do. I have to write about, I have to write a book about all of Buddhism, and they've only given me 40,000 words. And I said, oh, that's terrible, 40,000 words. It's either way too many or way too few. And he sort of stopped and he said, way too many? What do you mean? And I said, well, you, you really only need seven, making it up from scratch. And he immediately said the obvious thing, which is, what are the seven? And this is what came out. Um, everything changes. Everything is connected. Pay attention. And it's actually true that you can find in those phrases uh, all of the teachings of Buddhism having to do with transience and interconnection, um, having to do with uh, the the paramitas, the list of the eight right things to do. Um, one is awareness. Um, but really, you can unfold not only Buddhism, because Buddhism, of course, is just one description of human life, but almost, you know, obviously any such phrase leaves many, many things out. But you can unfold an awful lot from it. And what I discovered after years of, you know, people liked it, and so I, I began to repeat it. And it's rather gotten away from me. It's carved on a sculpture next to one of the great lakes, and it's uh, been used by Zen teachers as a teaching motto. And and one thing I discovered several years after coming up with it was, really, you only need the last two. Because if you pay attention, you'll see that everything changes and that everything is connected. <laughs> <laughs> you, you even, so I was way too verbose. <laughs> I, I call it really samurai writing. I mean, cutting it down and cutting it down. Great, great. You know, you you don't uh, stick to any one form of poetry. I mean, I love it because you're not in any box of oh, this is how she Thank always you. does it. She, you use prose. You use rhyming. You use haiku. You use the whole, the whole full. Catastrophe, <laughs> as maybe Zorba would say. But it's um, let's do one that is sort of rhyming, and that's the three-legged blues. If yes, we could. yes. Yeah. So, so this is my very uh, uh, chipper little poem about a really bad day. Um, three-legged blues. Always you were given one too many, one too few. What almost happens doesn't. What might be lost, you'll lose. The crows will eat your garden. Weeds will get what's left. Your cats will be three-legged. Your house is mice. Be blessed. One friend will take your husband. Another wear your dress. No, it isn't what you wanted. It isn't what you choose. Your floors have always slanted. Your roof has paid its dues. Life delivered you a present. A too small pair of shoes. What almost happened won't now. What can be lost, you'll lose. 
<laughs> and I have to say for for your um, more more um, alert listeners that I'm I'm well aware that it isn't in proper blues form, <laughs> and if anybody wants to hear it uh, being put into proper blues form, um, a songwriter and singer David Lockhelt has done that, changing it to make it right, and you can hear that by going to the Drunken Boat website, and I I just love what he did with it. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> I look forward to doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we only have a, a few minutes left. Just um, you, the way you write, you you don't write every day, do you? Like some people just, they do, they yes, practice all, every day. Yes, all of the admirable people write every day, and I'm the unadmirable, bad example person who, who doesn't because when I try to force myself to write, Nothing good comes of it. Mm. Um, I write terribly, and I embarrass my dog. <laughs> so I, I, um, I write when I have something to say, and I believe that um, poetry is not an obligation. It's not a duty. Poets can fall silent if they have nothing more to say, and that's all right. It's a great gift to me to be able to write at all. And for some reason, although, you know, it's like if a person can write every day, I encourage them to. (laughs) But if they can't, follow me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's go out with one last poem. And uh, I think it's the last poem of the book, uh, Supple Deer. Yes. Yes, if we may. The Supple Deer. The quiet opening between fence strands, perhaps 18 inches. Antlers to hind hooves, four feet off the ground, the deer poured through. No tuft of the coarse white belly hair left behind. I don't know how a stag turns into a stream, an arc of water. I have never felt such accurate envy. Not of the deer. To be that porous, to have such largeness pass through me. So what was the inspiration of that poem? Watching a a four-point buck go through an 18-inch space four feet off the ground. With full antlers and everything. With full antlers. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I knew how big that gap was. I knew it was impossible for a deer, let alone a deer with full antlers. And he just sailed through it. It was astonishing. Mm. Mm. Um, So, you know, reality gives you poems. You don't have to make them up. You just need to look, and they are all around us. And in a way, writing a poem is a way to enter experience more fully, more deeply, to expand that moment, to revisit it. Um, If I hadn't written the poem, I'm not sure how often I would remember that extraordinary vision of that deer and my own feeling of the permeability of my garden, of my life, of my existence. And, you know, that's the actual point of the poem, is wanting to be porous to what comes, even if what comes sometimes eats your garden to nothing. Oh, Jane, thank you so much for being with us today. My great pleasure. Thank you so much for your program. It means the world to me, and I know so many listeners. Thank you. I've been here with Jane Hirschfield, and she's the author of Come Thief. If you would like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, facebook.com forward slash Jane Hirschfield. 
And Hirschfield is spelled H-I-R-S-H-F-I-E-L-D. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3410. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.